Welcome to week three of Vinyl. Throughout this series, we've been exploring the music and the lives of famous artists, tracing the biblical themes in the hopes that we might live and love more like Jesus. In week one, we looked at Phil Collins. Last week, we looked at Whitney Houston. And today, we look at the man in black, Johnny Cash. Cash said that he wore all black in his performances on behalf of the poor and the hungry, the prisoner who has long paid for his crime, and those who have been betrayed by drugs. Johnny Cash was actually born J.R. Cash, but when he enlisted in the Air Force, they wouldn't accept initials as his first name. And so it, he put John R. Cash. Okay, he never had a middle name. He grew up as a poor cotton farmer in rural Arkansas, and his dad was very stern, okay? A fairly typical Depression-era man. And then you add alcohol to the mix, and it becomes a very difficult childhood. Johnny could never get his dad's approval, okay? This was the driving force behind many of the all-time great singers, always striving for the approval of their father. His mother taught him to play guitar and sing gospel songs at a young age, and he would play gospel music throughout his career. Johnny had a brother, Jack, who was two years older than him. And Jack, he was a saint. Okay? They say that he never sinned, that he had this biblical knowledge that he was going to be the preacher of the family. And in the Deep South, this was the highest of callings. At the age of 14, Jack died in a tragic accident. And for Johnny, it is impossible to overestimate the impact of losing his brother. Not only was it the devastation of this accident, but it was Johnny's dad and what he told him afterwards. He said to his son, I wish it were you instead of Jack. And for the rest of his life, Johnny carried this, this heaviness, this tragic loss. And after he had made it big, Johnny invited his parents over to his house for dinner, and he invites the Reverend Billy Graham to dinner as well. Okay, this is the height of Billy Graham's popularity. And after dinner, Johnny goes up to his dad and says, what do you think about that? Billy Graham, pretty great, right? And his dad says, you still ain't nothing, son. After high school, he worked on cars, but quickly tired of it and enlisted in the Air Force. He was actually the very first American to hear that Joseph Stalin had died because he had been the radio operator who had interpreted the coded transmissions about it. When he got out of the military, he married his first wife, Vivian, and he wanted to be on the radio. Now, as far as singing is concerned, okay, Johnny Cash was definitely no Whitney Houston, perhaps in some ways the polar opposite. He had no range, uh, but he had a resonant bass baritone that demanded that you pay attention to it. It was quipped that the voice of Johnny Cash sounded like he had been carved out of rock and endued with the spirit of an Old Testament prophet. Now this is 1955, 1956. This was rock and roll's Big Bang, okay? In the 90s, you had Seattle for grunge music. In the 60s, you had Detroit with Motown. And in the 50s, you had Memphis with rock and roll. All of these guys were coming on the scene around the same time and in the same place and in the same city. Johnny Cash, Elvis Presley, Jerry Lee Lewis, Carl Perkins, all at Sun Records 
in Memphis. It was this new mix of rock and country that was called rockabilly, okay? And Johnny called up the producer of Sun Records, Sam Phillips, and he tried calling him 10 times, never got a hold of anyone. And so Johnny found out what time Sam Perkins shows up at work, and he brought his guitar and waited on the steps until he got there. When he got there, he introduced himself, and the guy said, uh, you're the one who's been calling, aren't you? He said, well, come on in, let's take a listen. Phillips was rumored to have told Cash to go home and sin, and then come back in, with a song that I can sell. He came back the next day with an original song uh, that was real, that was honest, that, that resonated, and the rest, they say, is history. Johnny released 17 albums over the next 10 years, appeared in films and TV, and he was constantly on tour. Johnny Cash struggled with addiction most of his life. In the 1950s and 60s, there was very little known about drugs and their regulation. And so when you're driving from city to city, doing shows every day and every night, uh, many of his prescription drugs were prescribed by doctors to keep him awake while driving, and then he would take different pills to help him sleep at night. The pills that Johnny Cash took, took over Johnny Cash. He was arrested seven times, and his addiction led to declining health problems. It led to a divorce from his first wife, Vivian, and his addiction also was tanking his career, okay? Sin does this. Sin always takes more than you want, costs more than you have, and keeps you longer than you want to stay. Romans 6 says, Don't you know that when you offer yourselves to someone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one you obey? Whether you are slaves to sin, which leads to death, or to obedience, which leads to righteousness. But thanks be to God, that though you used to be slaves to sin, you have come to obey from your heart the pattern of teaching that has now claimed your allegiance. You have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. I love that part, that you have come to obey from your heart the teachings of Jesus, which have now claimed your allegiance. Jesus can set us free. The Bible doesn't just tell us what Jesus did. The Bible tells us what Jesus does, okay? You can be free from your addiction. He can free you. He can humble you from your pride. He can remove your chains that bind you, and he can unlock the doors of the prisons that you yourself have created. I heard a story of how elephants are brought into captivity for a circus. Uh, you've seen these giant elephants, and they're... they're they're bound by this small, tiny rope around its ankle. Have you ever stopped to think, how could this tiny rope bind such a large creature? Physically speaking, there's no way that this smaller rope could, could actually hold back the elephant. Uh, how could this contain him? Here's how it works. When trainers begin to train a baby elephant, they place a heavy chain around its ankle and stake it into the ground. And day after day, hour after hour, the baby elephant struggles to escape, but his efforts are in vain. Okay? He simply cannot break free from the grips of the powerful chain. And eventually, he surrenders. He resolves in his mind that there is no possible way that he can escape this chain. And so, 
In so doing, he forever relinquishes the struggle to be free. Then, when he's given up, his master replaces the giant chain with a tiny rope. If the elephant ever opened their eyes to the truth, they could break free at any moment, and all it would take was one try. But since the elephant doesn't know that, he doesn't take a step in the direction of freedom. And so it happens that 10, 20, 30 years later, the giant elephant remains held in bondage by something that really has no power over him, except the power he chooses to give it. People who are addicted to drugs, who never admit that they're addicts, won't find freedom. People who are filled with anger, who won't admit that they have a problem, won't get freedom. People who are hooked at looking at images of people lustfully will not find freedom until you admit there's a problem. The first step is recognize that you are bound and that you have a problem. That's the first step towards breaking free. In reflecting on this season later on in his life, Johnny Cash said, I learned from my mistakes, but it was the most painful way to learn. Johnny Cash was last arrested in 1967 in Walker County, Georgia, after police found he was carrying a bag of prescription pills and had been in a car accident. He attempted to bribe the local deputy who turned down the money. The singer was jailed for the night in Lafayette, Georgia, and Sheriff Ralph Jones released him after giving him a long talk, a warning him about all the dangerous behaviors he's indulging in and all of his wasted potential. Cash later credited this experience to helping him turn around his life, to save his life. Years later, he returned to Lafayette, Georgia, played a benefit concert. It attracted 12,000 people. The city population was under 9,000, okay? And then he raised over $75,000 for the high school in Lafayette, Georgia. Uh, he married June Carter of the famous Carter family in 1968. And Johnny Cash began a decades-long re-examination of his life and rededication to his Christian roots. He was getting things right. He was, but his career itself was becoming an afterthought until he recorded a live album at Folsom Prison in California. Uh, Johnny Cash finished his performance at Folsom Prison with a song called Greystone Chapel. He had been handed the song the day before by a preacher, and he got it from an inmate in Folsom Prison who wrote uh, music about this chapel inside Folsom Prison to pass the time of his sentence. Cash stayed up late the night before learning and rehearsing the song, and the recording was just epic. It was iconic. He then recorded another live album, and this time at San Quentin State Prison. And if you look at the song list on the back of the album of his uh, Live at San Quentin Prison, you'll notice that the same song is listed twice. The song's called San Quentin, okay? You'll see San Quentin, San Quentin. Why? Well, because after he performed it the first time, the crowd goes crazy, and they demand that he sing it again. And so he sang it back to back. That song gave such voice to their pain, to their anguish, to their anger. And after the second time, they're ready to go, okay? They're like, Johnny, just, just say the words and we'll all bust out of this place right now. He gave such voice to their pain 
that he darn there started a prison riot in San Quentin. In 1969, Johnny Cash outsold the Beatles and the Rolling Stones. One of his most famous song lyrics is from his song, Folsom Prison Blues. When I was just a baby, my mama told me, son, always be a good boy, don't ever play with guns. But I shot a man in Reno just to watch him die. He has lots of songs like this. They're, they're murder ballads. But notice that every one of these murder ballads it's always from the point of view of consequence. It's after the fact. It's never about doing the crime in the moment, but rather dealing with the consequences of the crime itself. This remorse, this guilt, this pain, this self-inflicted pain. It was this kind of dark honesty and so much of his music that may have been his greatest gift. Johnny Cash faced his darkness. We see this throughout his life and we see this throughout the scriptures, particularly in the imprecatory Psalms, okay? The imprecatory Psalms are these recorded prayers, these, these yelling matches with the divine, and they're filled with rage and they're filled with violence. And there are lots of them, okay? But here's some of them. Psalm chapter three, verse seven. Arise, Lord, deliver me, O my God. Strike all my enemies on the jaw. Break the teeth of the wicked. Psalm 58. Break the teeth in their mouths, O God. Okay, he loves the breaking of this teeth thing, doesn't he? Okay, Lord, tear out the fangs of those lions. Let them vanish like water that flows away when they draw the bow. Let their arrows fall short. May they be like a slug that melts away as it moves along, like a stillborn child that never sees the sun. Wow, like a stillborn child that never sees the sun. David goes dark here, okay, really dark. Okay, that's not very nice, David. And no, it's not. Why are these prayers found in the Bible? Are they for us to emulate? Are we to pray terrible things upon our enemies and the children of our enemies? No, no, no. In Jesus' name, no. Okay, Jesus teaches us to love our enemies and to pray for those who persecute you. I, I believe that the imprecatory Psalms are descriptive, not prescriptive, okay? Descriptive in that they describe the totality of the human experience and it is okay to bring that to God. They're not prescriptive. They're not teaching us how to pray. But if we're honest, in the deepest recesses of our soul and psyche, we've had these thoughts. We see them as thoughts of justice. I just want people to get what's coming to them. I just want them to know how much they hurt me. This bold honesty in prayer, even revealing the darkest parts of who we are. And God's like, I'll take it. Picture two siblings playing in the backyard. One burst through the door crying, he hit me. Okay, some of you, you, this, you know the situation all too well. And as a parent, you don't know who struck who, uh, but the child uses the most colorful of language to describe the pain and the attack. And then you bandage the wound and they say, ground them. He, he did that to me. They're in pain. They're wounded. They're crying. As a parent, you don't silence them in that moment. 
You let them express it. You let them feel it and you listen. You allow them to let it all out. And then you say, how about you just leave the punishment to me? I suspect that that is what's happening with the imprecatory prayers in the book of Psalms. Given our deep propensity to violence, what are we to do with these urges, this darkness found within? I think there are three things we can do with our thirst for vengeance. We can act it out, we can repress it or deny it, or we can give it to God. And I think that is what the psalmists are doing. They're unloading it all to God. And it is also important to note that the psalmists do not attempt to do the retaliation themselves. In all of these cursing psalms, it's never, and because they did this, I'm going to their house and I'm going to beat them up um, and then throw their kids around that. No, none of that. It's laying it before God. And so it is okay to give that darkness to God. Rather than repressing it, hiding it, burying it, bring it up to God so that his light may shine through it. It might replace the darkness with his light and with his love. Lay it all before him. Johnny Cash still had struggles with addiction throughout the 1980s and the 90s. Uh, he had some major health problems. Okay? He, was, he was wheelchair bound. He had tons of heart issues, tons of breathing issues. He had a rare form of Parkinson's. He was almost blind at one point. Uh, somehow he broke his jaw and he didn't know it. And so for a year he lived with this immense jaw pain. Then he finally went to the doctor and the doctor was like, um, your jaw's been broken for a year. Okay. He went into a coma several times, but always came back. But in April of 2003, when his wife, June Carter died, Johnny died later that September. One of the last songs that he recorded was a cover of the Nine Inch Nails song, Hurt. And this could be perhaps the greatest cover song of all time. He took something that was so personal to Trent Reznor, the, the lead singer of Nine Inch Nails, and then he made it his own. In the music video, Johnny is reliving his life, and it was filmed at the House of Cash Museum. And the museum is all dilapidated and run down, and it's closed to the public at this time. And the song was originally about Trent Reznor's addiction to drugs. But the whole song is completely transformed when sung through Cash's perspective. Because now, it's not someone who is in the throes of addiction. It is someone at the end of their life looking back with regret. And in the music video, there's this, this naked vulnerability in Johnny Cash, revealing the present state of himself to the world. It juxtaposes himself in his heyday, strutting on stage with his wife, June, when they're young and vibrant, with who they are now in a broken museum. When the original writer of the song saw the video, he said, well, I guess this isn't my song anymore. The Hurt music video was nominated for six MTV Video Music Awards. Uh, he was nominated among such younger artists like Missy Elliott, 50 Cent, uh, Eminem, and Justin Timberlake. Justin Timberlake actually beat Johnny Cash in the category of best male video. And in accepting this award, uh, Justin Timberlake grabs the mic and says, I demand a recount. He said, I grew up in Memphis listening 
to Johnny Cash my whole life. Let's watch part of the Hurt music video. I hurt myself today To see if I still feel I focus on the pain The only thing that's real What have I become? My sweetest friend Everyone I know Goes away In the end And you could have it all My empire of dirt I will let you down If I could start again A million miles away I would keep myself I would find a way It's heavy. Three months after this music video, June Carter Cash died. Four months after that, Johnny died. And shortly after that, uh, that museum burned down. Uh, when you hold that and watch it, it, it affects you. The, the lyrics, especially the ones about loss, Okay, my empire of dirt, and he's staring at all of his awards. And then the most haunting is everyone I know goes away in the end, sung by an elderly Johnny. It takes on a gravitas of loss because you're looking back at a lifetime of losses. You can be sure that Johnny is thinking of his brother Jack. Jack died when he was 12. It's this haunting, beautiful song about all forms of hurt. Really, it's, it's his expression that he's had through most of his career, that brutal honesty, even revealing the darkness to the light. Everything that you have, it all goes away. Every penny you've earned doesn't matter in the end. Everyone we know goes away in the end. Now, I'm not saying this so that we think, well, life is short, so the only thing that matters is heaven. No, I'm saying the exact opposite. Because life is short, because it all goes away in the end, let's make this one count. Let's make our lives beautiful. Life is precious. People are precious. Love them now. Love them well. Live in the love of God. Let's live in a way that continues to make a difference after we die. God, I pray in Jesus' name that we live fully 
now that the abundant life that you have come to give us doesn't start when we die. No, it begins here and now. And so God, in knowing you, Jesus, may you open up our eyes to the beauty before us. All this stuff may fade, but you don't. You remain. God, help us to see the beauty all around now and help us to bring your kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. God, help us to leave a life of addiction. Help us to leave and break the chains that bind us. Jesus, we need you in this. We thank you for the cross. We thank you for salvation. We thank you for forgiveness. All of us have been broken. All of us have been hurt. All of us have failed. All of us have struggled. All of us have been locked up in one way or another. Jesus, we thank you that you break the chains. Let us live in that freedom in Jesus' name. Amen. We want to thank you so much for joining us online at Prodigal Church Fresno. Next week is the finale of our vinyl sermon series, and we're going to look at the music and life of Kendrick Lamar. Uh, and then in two weeks, it's Prodigal's fifth birthday party, and we are going to be at United Skates of America skating and just having an absolute blast together from 10 to 12. We're not going to be having service at Bullard. It's going to be all moved to the skating arena, and we are going to have an absolute blast. We look forward to seeing you there. Grace and peace in Ukraine. I keep a close watch on this heart of mine. I keep my eyes wide open all the time I keep the ends out for the tie that binds Because you're mine I walk the